Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I didn't attend the insurrection in Washington last Wednesday, but my friend Alan Chin was there working as a photojournalist. You may remember Alan from a Home of the Brave episode in 2019, where he talks about covering wars in foreign countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, Ukraine. But over the past year, Alan's been covering the war here at home, photographing the protests and riots and Trump rallies across the country. Six days ago, last Tuesday, Alan was in Georgia for the Senate runoff elections. Then he drove through the night to be in Washington Wednesday morning for Donald Trump's speech. I asked him to start there. Yeah, on the morning of January 6th in Washington, D.C., I arrived and joined the crowd of tens of thousands of Trump supporters uh, listening to him speak out over these loudspeakers and with his face on these enormous jumbotron screens that they had erected on the ellipse, which is uh, on the mall, you know, facing the Washington Monument. And the crowd was large enough um, that it was really reached all the way to and around the Washington Monument from the White House. And I was with that crowd as he spoke and as he began to use, as we've come to expect, ever more angry and, and inciting language. You know, he was telling them to go march to the Capitol and he was telling them that they would never surrender. And, you know, those are not quotes. I'm paraphrasing. And then I got on my phone, as I looked at my phone, I was seeing that clashes were already beginning at the Capitol uh, between these Trump supporters and the police. And so I very quickly made my way over to the Capitol. um, And as I got to the Capitol, I did see indeed that there was already a large crowd on the Capitol grounds that there was no fence, in fact, at the outer perimeter of the Capitol grounds, um, and that you could just walk right up to the steps. And as I got, as I joined, so I joined that crowd walking up to the steps, and as I got to the top, I realized that indeed, clashes were already in progress. The crowd was pushing against the police metal barricades, and the police were already using pepper spray and their police batons and also some flashbang munitions to try to hold the crowd back. What did you hear people saying? Did they say Trump told us to, I mean, what what were people saying as they walked or moved toward the Capitol no, building? No, the, no, one, no one that I heard, refer, they were more saying, um, we support Trump and stop the steal. And, um, you know, and then they were saying, this is the people's house, and so it's our house. And then they were oftentimes yelling at the police. They were using phrases like traitor. You heard that a lot. You heard a lot of just Trump, 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 USA, USA. What about, did anybody invoke God or the name of God? I specifically didn't hear anyone talk about God, although I did see a lot of Christian imagery. There were people with large crosses um, and things like that, uh, which, you know, we've come to expect at many of these far-right gatherings, and they're not surprising to see that. Um, And, you know, I'll be honest also, though, I realize that as a Chinese-American and as a journalist with two cameras... Um, that I should not be 
too noticeable, if you were. And at one point, while I was in that crowd, I was um, set upon by a group of New Jersey Proud Boys. I could tell <laughs> that they were from New Jersey because they had that on their on their shirts. They were all wearing the kind of same black, uh, well, we can call them uniforms, but you know, outfits. Um, with body armor and with walkie-talkies and, and it said New Jersey on, on them or Jersey Jersey boy or Jersey proud boy, something like that. And one of them became very angry because I was taking pictures and, and he started saying to me, fuck you, fuck you, stop taking pictures. And this was in a section of the crowd that was very tight and so there was no way I could really back off or run away or anything like that. And, and there were five or six of them, and at least the, the one in particular was very angry. And I realized I didn't have a lot of options. Um, so I, I made a calculated decision, and I actually put my left hand on his shoulder in a kind of bro-type move. And I said, you know, dude, it's okay. It's all right, man. It's all right. And he kept yelling at me, fuck you. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. And he's like, stop taking pictures. I'm like, I'm not taking pictures because I had my camera in my right hand but I was no longer obviously at that moment taking pictures and he said let me see your camera let me see your memory card and I said no 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 you're not going to see my camera and and he goes no see fuck you why are you wearing a mask so I was wearing a, a full balaclava and a, and a face mask and a bicycle helmet and he was haranguing me like a soy I actually kind of started patting him <laughs> and I realized you know some people would say get out of my personal space don't touch me but I realized, you know, it was, it was, uh, I didn't have a lot of options. And if he's going to attack me, um, then at least I already have one hand on him and I, I have a tactical advantage and at least I would take him down before his five buddies would stomp me. <laughs> and I had that very much in my mind. Um, luckily for me, you know, my, my, my attempt at, at kind of being a fraternity brother, I think, uh, you know, paid off and, and, and I was able, once I found a small opening in, in the crowd that was behind me that had, had me packed in, I, I was able to kind of let go of him and, and slip through a crack and, and disappear into the crowd. So that actually happened wow. fairly early um, yeah. in, in the afternoon in that crowd. And after that, I was a little bit aware that, you know, um, I maybe should, should try to keep as low a profile as I could, understanding that I'm still in the middle of it. And as we now know, afterward, we see the accounts and the videos. We saw how uh, my friend and colleague John Manchillo was, was beaten. We saw how Aaron Schaff, who was, one, who was the New York Times photographer inside the Capitol, was attacked uh, by the Proud Boys, and she had a camera destroyed. And we know other journalists had their cameras destroyed. And so when you take all these into account afterwards, I think I made a rational choice you know, not to actually talk to too many of them and ask them, too deeply about their motivations. I, I thought yeah. it was best just to be an observer. So this thing about going after journalists, that's new, I think, isn't it? What do you think about that? Or have you seen it progress? You know, I think I think there's, you know, especially in, in, in Portland, Oregon and other places, we've journalists have become targets um, from both the right and the left. It has to be admitted, you know, the some of the Antifa activists do not like being photographed. Um, and many of the Proud Boys also don't, um, you know, 
And historically, actually, up until now, it's actually been in some ways easier to, to photograph the far right than the far left, at least in public, in these big gatherings. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think there is such an anger and such a despair with these people, with the f what is clear now is the final and irrevocable loss. And journalists became part of that, right? Because we are the ones who are accused of being fake news. We are the ones who are accused of, of um, you know, in this Orwellian terms of phrase, we are the ones who are accused of lying. But what we saw at the Capitol was either going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and kind of resets our country's politics and culture, or it's the first act of a kind of low-level civil war, right? Huh. You know, I've covered a lot of protests in my life and a lot of actual conflict. And like wars. Difference, yeah, like I mean, wars. And, and the difference between those two, there's a difference, right? A protest is symbolic. You know, you go out and protest, you make a big sign, you, you carry a banner, um, you might even get arrested for civil disobedience. You know, you do all this kind of stuff. And, and the reason you do that is performative. It's a performance. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, and I mean this, and I don't mean any of this in a partisan way. No matter what cause you're protesting for, you're out there because you want to win hearts and minds. You want to convince other people that what you're protesting for or against, you know, is, is the way to go. And any violence that happens, whether it's, it's, you know, some of these clashes, as we've seen, you know, with sticks and, you know, um, or, or with even with pepper spray and, and things like that, you know, it can get rough. And but the understanding has always been that this is symbolic, even the violence of a protest, if it does get that way, is symbolic. And. And then there's a point, and sometimes it's very hard to tell where that point is. It stops being symbolic, and it starts being actual. And unfortunately, you know, this has been happening. You know, when Kyle Rittenhouse shoots three people and kills two of them, that's not symbolic violence. That's actual violence. And we are seeing outbreaks of this. Uh, you know, really, Charlottesville was a kind of watershed a couple of years ago now, three years ago now. But what happened in the Capitol is this truly, I think, boiling over. This is not a game anymore. This is not a performance. And in that sense, it is very much like war or a war of a certain kind, right? Because this is an attack on the legislature of a superpower. It is, it is an occupation. We saw these pictures now of people in the Senate and the one woman who was killed, and I think justifiably killed, by the security uh, guards. Um, she was shot and killed because she was breaking into an area where the actual members of Congress were. And, you know, this could be a situation where members of Congress would be killed or wounded or taken hostage. We've seen pictures of some of these attackers with zip ties. What were they doing with those zip ties? Were they intending to take people hostage? It's, I don't think there's any other conclusion than that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so when you're doing that, you know, we're hearing a lot of words like coup or coup attempt. I don't think that's exaggerating. I think that is accurate. I think it is an insurrection and the fact that five people died, but it could have been many, many, many more. And we all know that. 
this is real and at any point either the defenders of the capital are going to use greater force and or we know many of these proud boys were armed or some of these attackers will and or both and if either of those things happening we're looking at a potential bloodbath and how do you know they were how do you know they were armed well, they said they would be there was stuff online about you know how to how to circumvent washington dc's gun control laws and you know advice about what kind of weapons to bring and even if they didn't have firearms they were using these real metal pipes and wooden sticks and um, they had their own pepper spray. Um, and that they brought own, with them? Yes, or? that they brought with them. And you can see that in some of my photographs. They have sticks and they have, um, uh, you know, they brought a ladder, they, you know, at one point, you know, so that they could more easily climb the wall. They brought, um, they were wearing very good, in many cases better than what the police had. They were wearing body armor and, and, and face masks and ballistic goggles. Um, so that they could absorb the blows from the police, right? <laughs> they had uh, walkie-talkies to communicate with each other. You know, could I tell you the exact number of guns they had in the crowd? No, of course I can't. Because in their backpacks or where would they have them? I, I think so. And as you know now from the news reports, they have, um, you know, the police in, in, their, in their too late lockdown of the area have found guns in cars and, and there were I believe there was a bomb that was sent to the the RNC uh, offices in in DC as well. You know, so so it's clear that there was lethal weaponry in this crowd, and I really thought this is going to go bad. You know, this is going to turn into a gun battle at some point if it doesn't stop. And frankly, I like everybody else, I was utterly shocked at how weak the police line was and how easily it was overwhelmed and this is on the west side where i was on the east side of the capital as we've now seen they opened the doors they didn't even resist at all yeah. uh which is even more shocking um but even on, on where i was where there was a clash the police forces were weak i kept looking back towards the mall towards the washington monument and the lincoln memorial i kept looking for the streets to be blocked off and for police reinforcements to come from behind in order to cut off this crowd. I kept looking for that all afternoon and I never saw it. Have you seen I, that other places as a tactic? Of course, of course. So the what, NYPD, what happens in other places? What, in ooh. other places, the police have helicopters overhead. They cut off and seal off the streets and it's a controversial tactic, as we know, when used against protesters of the left, but they do what they call kettling right where they arrest everyone inside an area they actually will use a in, in new york they'll use a piece of orange plastic netting literally to like as if they were fishing to cut to kind of catch a large group and arrest everyone inside of it they know how to do this you know i think a lot of progressive activists are angry when they do this on the streets of new york city on a public street when you know there is no violence happening but if it was ever called for, it certainly would be when, again, the Capitol building of, of the country is under attack. Yeah. And, and they didn't do anything like that. I didn't see any arrests or possibly only one arrest in that whole crowd. Whereas in other police actions, they pull people from the crowd and arrest them. Anyone who's aggressive, anyone who's actually in, in that front line and brawling, 
they will often pull out one at a time. They, you know, if they're not going to kettle the whole group, they'll pull one person out at a time and arrest that person, and then they'll do the next one. So, but was it just the Capitol Police you were watching, or what units were there? No, so actually the units on the West Portico were actually D.C. Metropolitan Police. Uh, and, and I'll jump ahead a little bit. When, when they finally were able to clear the area and finally did use tear gas in copious amounts at the end of the day when sunset came, um, that was the Virginia State Police. So clearly they didn't have the assets on hand. They, they, you know, and, and, men, and as I was saying, many of the police that I saw didn't even have gas masks or the correct body armor. They were actually less well-equipped than the people that were pushing on them. They didn't use rubber bullets. And again, they didn't even use actual tear gas hardly until the end. I think through the afternoon on the West Portico, I counted two or three tear gas canisters over the course of nearly three hours. What and were they using if not tear gas? Pepper spray. Hmm. and flashbangs. Um, let's be really specific here. Pepper spray is shot out of a nozzle. You can see it in some of my photographs. It's, yep. it's like a, um, and, and it's supposed to hit one or at most two or three people at a time. It's a targeted, you know, device. Tear gas comes as a grenade. Once you deploy it, once you throw a, a tear gas canister, it blankets the whole area. And if you use many tear gas canisters at once, which they finally did at uh, at dusk, then you can hit, you know, the whole area um, and, and, and hit hundreds um, or even thousands of people all at once, right, with the tear gas. Tear gas is much more effective, much more serious. And, and it is escalatory. And again, that's why its use is controversial. Um, but, you know, clearly by early afternoon, the failure to use tear gas and the failure to use rubber bullets meant that the defensive tools that the police could use were, were very limited and inadequate. And because of that, the police line then collapsed. And I saw it happen bef before me. It was, it was stunning to see these police actually break and retreat inside the building. The, the police finally decided they had lost the battle for the West Portico and they retreated inside the building. And at this point, the attackers controlled the entire outdoor area of the Capitol. Had you ever seen the police retreat like that before? In the middle of an actual clash, no. I have earlier this year in certain places seen the, re the police decide not to be aggressive. But that was not, let me be really clear, that was never while a clash was already happening. Huh. That was always only to, in a sense, decide not to have a clash happen, to reduce the chance of a clash happening. I have never in my life seen an American police force retreat while it was actually under attack. Huh. And the attackers, they broke windows and doors and they got in. I decided not to join them. If you see one of my photographs there, it's of the attackers climbing in to the building. I decided not to follow them. Yeah. Um, I decided not to follow them because I frankly thought that it would be too dangerous. Um, and if I had been the commander of the Capitol Police, I probably would have authorized the use of more force much faster. And this is a 
upsetting thing for me as a lifelong progressive to say. I've never been so happy to see the police billy club people. I've never been so happy to be tear gassed in my life. Huh. I never thought I could would say that, but it's absolutely huh. true. Huh. Um, that being said, some of my friends and colleagues did go in and mad kudos to them. They did their jobs. And I will say this, of the hundreds of professional journalists and, and photographers on scene, collectively as a group, I am really proud of my friends and colleagues. I feel that, that as a group, we are not fake news. We did our jobs, we did our jobs to the best of our ability, and if each of us has a small view of it, you know, that's, that's how it is for something that is as big as this. And in this case, you know, where is this going to go? I mean, is this truly a coup? Is Trump going to now show up in, in this destroyed capital and say that, you know, see, I have reclaimed my authority and, you know, I'm going to arrest Joe Biden now, right? I mean, it, yeah. was that going to happen? It seems far-fetched now, but in that moment, was it that far-fetched? I'm not sure, Yeah. right? It looked like a, a lynch mob to me. Exactly. It looked like a lynch mob. It was a lynch mob of sorts. You know, I felt very strange. You know, if something bad is ever going to happen to me doing this, knock wood that it doesn't. But if something bad is ever going to happen to me doing this, I don't really want it to be with a bunch of Nazis, right? You know? Yeah. So can you feel the difference between a fascist crowd and just like a other type of crowd? Did these people feel different to you or new? The they're, they're older. They're older. Okay. On, on average, progressive crowds tend to be, the crowds of the left tend to be younger. Hmm. Um, this is pure speculation, but I think some of the research bears it out. They actually come from more established lives. Um, you know, the typical Tea Party activists, you know, and, and these people, of course, are the successors of the Tea Party you know, the typical type like this is not actually poor. These are not the people that actually lost their jobs at the uh, GM plant when it closed, right? These are the people one or two steps above that. These are people who often have, you know, maybe high five-figure or low six-figure incomes. These are people with families, you know, and children and, and, and parents and grandparents. Um, they are not alienated from mainstream society any other day of the week. These are, in fact, you know, your real estate agent and your plumber and, yes, as we saw, your retired or, or off-duty service members and police members. These are people that, as we also saw in some cases, are minor political figures. They are, they're, you know, the West Virginia state legislator. And so you see this, and you and, and you see this even in their in their body armor, and you see right now some of these accusations that this was all crisis actors. It was Antifa doing this, pretending to be Proud Boys. Well, I can tell you, the Proud Boys with their get-ups, with their with their matching body armor and uniforms and other gear, that stuff is not cheap. Okay, no yeah. no young Antifa activist, you know can go to Walmart and buy this stuff for $9.99. It's just not possible. Uh, this equipment costs hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And, and so they're actually really well equipped. Like yeah. I said, even better equipped than the police in some cases. 
And that is not true for Antifa. That is not true for any progressive activists. You know, they don't have those kinds of resources, you know. Do you think that these people are racist? Do you, when people talk about racism as being the central issue, do you agree with that? Do you think it's about that the rage is from racist fears? I do. I do. Mm. And I, and it's, it's been a long and hard and reluctant issue for me as I think it is for a lot of people to finally come to terms with because you know my generation was brought up in the aftermath of the 60s and I was taught a you know the famous quote from Martin Luther King you know the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice right <laughs> and again I know it gets quoted all the time so whatever it's 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 okay but but that's how my generation was raised with that idea and the belief that racism is real and, you know, you encounter it, um, but it is slowly going to be overcome, right? And it is, you know, and at every step we see how there's more interracial marriage and how we see Obama becoming president and how we see all these things. And it's all incremental. None of it is fast enough. None of it is good enough. But you know, it's out there. And as a non-white person, you know, I have mostly benefited from this country in meaningful ways. And I would not deny that. And I, in fact, am very proud of that. And I celebrate that. You know, one can be simultaneously a critic and an analyst and also still, um, you know, a member of society and, and, and believing those things. And I do, or I did. And so I think it's really very hard for me to accept that a lot of these nice people, you know, and even they're, like I'm saying, when they express racism towards me, it's it's usually more um, subtle than when they express it towards a black or brown person. You know, with me, I often get remarks like, oh, you know, so you're Chinese. Oh, so your, your people are really good at math and science <laughs> and computers. You know, I get that a fair amount or, or versions of that, right? And obviously, and that's just me, and I'm Asian, you know, forget it. What about people that are black and brown, right, as, as, as we know? So, you know, look, I, I get it. I get it. And I see, I think that these people really are racist in, in, in direct and indirect and in, in conscious and subconscious in, in, in small and big ways. And I don't think there's any way around that. I absolutely do not. And I actually do think the only way to fix that is truly to make the progress that I was that we're just talking about you know the myth of that progress the arc of that justice the only way to overcome that is is for it to to continue right and that's why Reverend Warnock becoming the first black senator ever I think from from Georgia is important and that's why you know getting people of color into positions of authority and prominence is and remains important I mean, I don't, that's it, right? You know, the only way these people are ever going to accept a multiracial country and society is if they finally, irrevocably realize that there is no other choice. You can see some of Alan's photos of the insurrection on our website, homebrave.com. There's also a link there to the other episode with Alan talking about covering wars overseas. 
For the past few months, I've been working on stories from a road trip across the country, talking to people about the 2020 election. I think in lieu of these recent events, these stories are now finished. The main thing I learned on that trip, the main thing I had to say, was that it felt like I was driving through a war zone. And now, here we are. I'd like to say we've hit bottom and there's nowhere else to go but up, but I think that's delusional. My plan now is to sit and wait and see what happens. And that's really all I think I can say at this point. I'd like to thank Christy Jones and Barrett Golding for helping out with this episode, and I'd like to thank everyone who followed and supported my trip down the river last fall. I really couldn't have done it without you. If you feel like supporting this show in the future, there are ways to donate and subscribe on our website, homebrave.com. Good luck to everybody, and thanks again for your help.